0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. I'm Kyle. How's everybody doing? Yeah, I hope you're doing good out there. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. That's good. That's good. Uh, How are you doing? I'm all right. Oh, just all right. I'm all right. I'm okay. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, just uh, old business and new business? Yeah. Um, So we're a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Yes. Yes. Uh, so many great podcasts on the network. Um, one of my favorites is the podcast, or this podcast Kills Fascists. Ooh. If you haven't listened to that one yet, um, it's designed around protest songs and their history. Uh, real great examination of those types of songs. So I encourage you to check that out at pantheonpodcasts.com and then come back and listen to something else from our catalog. Yeah. Um, we also have a, uh, I'd like to announce a new partner. Ooh. Uh, Commerce. Wise, Uh, the name is Volumetric, so I have a little spiel here that I'm going to read. Everyone loves sharing their favorite music, uh, whether it be through links, mixtapes, plugging your phone into the aux, or even hanging up posters around your living spaces. Album art is a sight to behold itself, but the one thing it can't do is tell you what a a song sounds like. Volumetric hopes to do just that, using volume analysis, the Volumetric program tracks the music's peaks and valleys its pans tilts and sways and gives a unique digital fingerprint of your favorite song or album the louder the song the brighter the art the more the song favors one speaker over another the more colorful it prints you'll be able to see some of the best parts of your favorite songs laid out in front of you like a map an artistic representation of how varied and dynamic the song actually is with multiple size, color, and style options, you can display your favorite piece of music in a brand new way that still fits your personal taste. Website is volumetricdesign.com, and you have a coupon code just put in AudioJudo for a discount. Uh, please go there. I have uh, one of their uh, pieces in my garage, and it's very cool. I actually had all the Rush albums done. It's very interesting. It's just no. a very uh, different representation of uh, the way music sounds. So huh, So go check cool. that out. I know I sprung that on you, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, so today we are talking about pet sounds. Oh my God.
1: Let's let's rephrase that. We're going to talk uh, about pet sounds, but we are barely going to scratch the surface of pet
0: sounds. Kyle has chosen for us one of the most daunting tasks in musical exploration. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Perhaps one of the greatest and undoubtedly one of the most influential oh, records yeah. of all time so sitting down to write uh, all of my initial thoughts uh it's a monumental task to say anything new about this record something that hasn't been covered in print or film or any other media out there but uh here we are <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um this
1: one it really is it's it's very very difficult doing the research for this i knew there was a lot of people that have written about this voluminous but when you start looking into it and you're like oh wait this is mentioned in like every music history textbook of the 20th century. Yes. And it is, or I'm sorry, yeah, 20th century.
0: Uh, Yep. And 21st
1: now. And 21st century now. It is just so many people have talked about it as being influential to their work. There are songs by several artists named in reference to this. Uh, Either the songs themselves are called Pet Sounds or Pet Sounds is included in the name, or they've taken names from songs on on Pet Sounds and used them as their own. Um, Not as cover versions of the songs, but they've manipulated the name in order to be a a track on their albums. Right. Uh, Phenomenal. It is a phenomenal piece of work. And at the time when it came out, it was totally underappreciated. Oh, yeah. Uh, This is the 11th studio album from the Beach Boys, uh, released May 16th, 1966. And something that I I always think about is uh, you look at like... uh, you look today at artists and you're like, oh, wow, 11 albums. That's pretty prolific. They must, have been, uh, they must have been working for a long time. This is still really early in the Beach Boys musical career. Oh, yeah. Total, they did 30 studio albums, 8 live albums, 55 compilation <laughs> albums, 23 EPs, and
0: 71 singles. Whatever you can squeeze a nickel out. Right? Right and uh, that's what they did they definitely did so great for them but for me this record being released in 1966 it kind of lays in a really strange place so for the generation before me let's say someone born in the 50s this is a record that they grew up with and it was an awakening in music for so many people uh this was on the heels of the beatles rubber soul which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. and was kind of at the advent of this very big explosion in rock music centered on experimentation, psychedelics, all sorts of musical innovation. I was never a fan of the Beach Boys when I was discovering music in my teens because the stuff I heard from them sounded so simple and straightforward compared to what I was listening to. And it was, however, uh, it was like anything that had come before it. But I had no point of reference to that. I didn't really get the table setters the people that had done it first. Yeah. Um, I really didn't care for the Beatles at that time. Uh, I was a much bigger bigger Zeppelin fan. Most of the stuff from the 60s, like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Birds, The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, were kind of non-starters for me. Uh, I wanted The Who, Rush, Floyd, Tull, Genesis. But what I didn't know is how much the building blocks from their music, whether overt or not, came from those other bands. Yeah, And the seeds were were sown. So the surf surf style music, like the harmonies and shuffle beats, they never intrigued me in those days. Uh, I was familiar with some of it because we played arrangements of that stuff in high school jazz band. You know, California Dreamin' by Mamas and Papas, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Songs like that were staples of the jazz band circuit, so we played them a lot. And I hated them. (laughs) So I ignored the Beach Boys for years and years. Even when I got my quote-unquote second musical wind and entered this period where I was discovering the influences of my influences, I ignored them. I dug into the Beatles heavily and just figured that they had a natural progression from that skiffle band of the early 60s and just kind of evolved quickly into this real big powerful force in music, but I was wrong. (laughs) Uh, When I first sat down to listen to this album, after hearing for years and years its profound influence on so much music after it, I still didn't really get it. It wasn't until many years later again, like into my late 30s, and I started listening to songs on headphones again, did the kind of proverbial dam start to open up. Like the textures and the melodies, the unconventional instrumentation and the phrasing that he used uh, was so unique. And uh, knowing where they had come from just made it more eye-opening There was something else at work here, and that something was Brian Wilson. Yes. So, you've given a little background. You want to give some more background on Pet Sounds?
1: Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, following up on that, uh, I had that same experience with uh, uh, the Velvet Underground.
0: Ah. Uh, yeah.
1: because everybody kept saying to me when I was a teenager, you got to listen to them. That's where it all started. That's where it, a lot of it started. That's where a lot of alternatives started. And then I listened to it and I was like, this is so plain and boring. What the hell are you people talking about? This isn't even groundbreaking. Right. But then you have to step back and say, okay, nobody had done this before. Now, if I took all of my knowledge of, you know, alt rock and, and future music and throw it out and then listen to this compared to, you know, the, the poppy, 50s and 60s stuff that was on the radio at the time, oh my God, then you hear it and you're like, wow, this is revolutionary. This is completely mm-hmm. new and different. Uh, and that, that to me is, is it's something that's really, really hard to explain to people because like I just said, you're asking them to throw out all their musical knowledge in order to understand why it's important to begin with. right? And then they can build on that foundation and say, okay, yeah, I actually like this or I don't like it or you know, it's important because of this. Other super important thing here is this is a time where people were beginning to experiment because recording had taken this huge step from – it was probably one of the most significant steps in recording technology going from recording straight to a piece of acetate vinyl Mm. to recording to tape and they had been doing it for quite a while by this point in the 60s but people were actually beginning to experiment with it people were beginning to do things where with multi-track recordings with playback recordings uh with layering because mm-hmm. they could record one thing and then layer it over another and layer it over another they if, uh, the concept of effects really started to take off in the 60s like you know we've heard of uh like acid rock uh you've heard of like you know wah pedals started to show up on guitars uh if people started to actually experiment with that kind of stuff in a much more serious way than they had before, and that really led to a lot of what you start to hear coming out of the 60s and into the 70s. Mm-hmm. Funk music, uh, prog rock, uh, rock in general, um, basically everything that wasn't like folk music <laughs> or exactly. acoustic after that built on it in some way. And That's why these are so important. Uh yeah the Beach Boys um obviously by this point they had been uh, recording for quite a while uh like I said uh when this album came out originally uh in the U S didn't do super great um it was number ten on the Billboard uh top LPs for a while like six or seven weeks not a really long time uh it got great critical reviews in the U K though it was number two on the U K top forty albums and it stayed on the top ten for over six months. However, a lot of that was probably to do with promotion mm. um, because in the UK it was promoted uh, – the tagline they used was the most progressive pop album ever. And they really like they, – they pushed it. I think that at the time people in the UK were a lot more hungry for new music than people in the US were. Mm-hmm. But uh, like I said uh, – I, I didn't say this before. Uh, it was recorded between January and April 1966, uh, produced, arranged, almost entirely composed by Brian Wilson – uh with guest lyricist Tony Asher and then some other people. There are a lot of musicians on this. Mm-hmm. A lot. Obviously the Beach Boys, Al Jardine, uh Al Jardine, uh Bruce Johnson, Mike Love, Brian Wilson, Carl Wilson, and Dennis Wilson. Uh guest performers, Tony Asher, who helped write it, also performed uh plucked piano strings. And I should also note, he actually has an unusual background. He was a copywriter. Um, he made music. Mostly for advertisements before
0: this. Tony Asher, are we talking about? Yeah.
1: Tony Asher. Uh, He did uh, a very famous advertising campaign for Mattel Toys called uh, You Can Tell It's Mattel, It's Swell, as well as uh, Max Factor, Gallo Wines, and a bunch of other high-profile clients.
0: Ernest and Julio Gallo?
1: Ernest and Julio Gallo.
0: Yes. (laughs) Sell no wine before it's time. Oh, (laughs) no, that's not Gallo. It might
1: be Gallo. I can't remember. I don't remember who that is. (laughs) Yeah, same, same Gallo. Um, But it's interesting that they brought in somebody who was a a lyricist and a songwriter who had done mostly advertisements, mostly quick turnaround work where he was listening to clients and then turning that into something that was marketable. Mm -hmm. And then he came in to do Pet Sounds, which was difficult to market. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's funny to me. I don't know. Uh, uh, Anyways, there was also uh, Steve Korth. I can never pronounce this name. K o r t h o f, Korthoff, Korthof? Korthoff, Korthoff uh, on tambourine. Marilyn Wilson on additional vocals. Terry Melker on tambourine. Uh, Tony surname unknown on tambourine, which mm-hmm. is weird to me. Uh, they had a huge group of session mus- musicians called the Wrecking Crew, which I'll loop back around to. Oh as yeah, just yeah a we talked about those. Oh, we're going to talk about them. Way too many people in there to mention, but if you want to look them up, their Wikipedia article is very, very detailed. Uh, And then the Sid Sharp strings, which were mostly violins, cellos, uh, a couple of basses, um, and some violas. um, But I believe there were about 12 or 14 members there. You can look them up if you want more details on them as well. Another really detailed Wikipedia article. But uh, one other thing I think we need to talk about before we launch into this Mm. is uh, what a concept album is.
0: So when I was younger, I kept hearing about how this was the first concept mm. album, and I really didn't understand that sentiment. concept albums that I was familiar with were like The Who's Tommy, yes. Genesis, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Which, they were sweeping musical statements.
1: Those make a lot more sense to me when you say concept album, right. because they have a continuous continuous narrative. Fully thing.
0: formed storylines with interweaving musical passages. Uh, this didn't feel like a concept album to me. It wasn't until years later uh, that I realized I had missed the point about a concept record. Uh, Brian Wilson said this in an interview from 1976. If you take the Pet Sounds album as a collection of art pieces, each designed to stand alone, yet which belong together, you'll see what I was aiming at. It wasn't really a song concept album or lyrically a concept album. It was really a production concept album. And if you look at it like that, that his goal was to make a cohesive statement from start to finish, sound-wise, then I guess I understand that that means concept album. Yeah. I guess we kind of have to explore a little bit more about where they were coming from originally. So I'm going to just loop back a little bit and assume for a minute that some of you don't know a lot about the Beach Boys. It's probably a good idea. So he mentioned who the people were, and Tony Asher is this kind of outsider in a band that's mostly relatives. So Brian Carl and Dennis Wilson are all brothers, Mike Love is a cousin, and then they have a family friend. El Jardine that formed the group with the help of the Wilson's father, Murray. They were originally called the Pendletones, uh, a riff on the very popular shirt at the time, the Pendleton. Mm. They recorded Surf and Safari. That would become a minor hit. And someone renamed them the Beach Boys because they didn't like Pendletones, <laughs> which, you know, that helps. They would release 10 albums since night. They formed in 1961, 10 albums in a span of five years before they released Pet Sounds. So by the end of 1964, The road and the stress was weighing heavily on Brian Wilson's head as he was the main creative force in the band. And on December 23, 1964, he suffered a panic, panic attack on a flight from L.A. to Houston. In 1965, January 65, he announced his retirement, quote unquote, retirement from touring to concentrate on record making and production. So first album after this withdrawal was Beach Boys Today. Which started to dabble in the album as art concept, mm-hmm. as he began to dabble in marijuana, LSD, and amphetamines. Hmm. I wonder, assorted, if there's
1: a, wonder if there's a connection there.
0: I did write assorted amphetamines so just to <laughs> make it clear. So he started to imitate the Phil Spector wall of sound yes. as he started to double and triple track voices, instruments, and thickened everything up lyrically. He also started to be somewhat more semi-autobiographical, which would kind of be the harbinger for pet sounds. Mm. Beach Boys today had such hits as Help Me Rhonda, and Rolling Stone named that album number 271 on the 500 best albums of all time. Wow. However, that album, even though having Help Me Rhonda, which wasn't a bona fide hit until the next record, did not perform well commercially, so the record company asked them to return to Surfing, guitars or surfing cars and girls that formula which they did and they produced an album called summer days and summer nights in 1965 that record produced help me ronda as a legitimate hit and then the juggernaut of a hit california girls so they would release one more album prior to pet sounds the acoustic and cover laden beach boys party
1: Exclamation mark.
0: Which would also be the last Beach Boys record to have exclamation points at the end like the previous three. (laughs) (laughs) So good win for grammar there. Right. Uh, Noticeable on this record is a cover of The Times They Are a Change In by Bob Dylan uh, and two covers by Wilson's musical peers, The Beatles.
1: Hmm.
0: So we're kind of give you just that background to get you up to speed on what's all weighing heavily. And now you have this kind of interloper Tony Asher into the mix with, with that's already a, a almost a fully formed family unit and there's friction there. And um, I think that sets the table. Yeah. Just want to give a little background on that. What I'm saying.
1: I want to go back to the, uh, the wall sound really quick. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Phil Spector and uh, Larry Levine, uh, wh- who was the engineer for that. Uh, they were working really closely with the band that would later become the wrecking crew that we mentioned earlier. Uh, And just to explain what it is, their idea was uh, instead of making a sound that sounds good live, make a sound that sounds good coming out of a radio because that's how people were beginning to consume music. So you make it sound good coming out of a radio. You make it sound good coming out of a jukebox. And that's what they did with the wall of sound. They found ways like you were saying. They layered a lot of things. They boosted a lot of the sounds so that it was louder. Um, and they uh, leveled a lot of things out so that the uh, music and vocals had the same sort of effect, uh, or I guess not effect, same sort of amplitude to them, so that they the vocals held just as much as the instruments did if you wanted it that way, or if not, you could mix it differently. But it really was a, a, a very, very new mixing technique at the time, and again, if you want a <laughs> incredibly detailed... Uh, breakdown of it, there are hundreds of articles written about it and how it influenced pop music engineering for today. I mean, it it still influences it today. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. But uh, like you were saying, Brian Wilson uh, was on that flight from California to Texas, had a nervous breakdown, started crying in the aisle of the plane, according to some people, Mm -hmm. um, and just laid on the floor until the plane landed, went back to California, said, I am done. I guess to, to begin this album, He wanted to make a complete statement, according to Brian Wilson himself, Mm -hmm. similar to what he believed the Beatles had done on uh, Rubber Soul, which came out December 1965. Mm -hmm. So during the writing sessions for this, Asher and Wilson regularly introduced uh, different album types of music to each other that they weren't super familiar with. Uh, In particular, Asher said that Wilson was blown away after being played jazz records, including Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady and Lionel Hampton's rendition of All the Things That You Are.
0: Lionel Hampton was... It was amazing Let's
1: talk a little bit About the artwork Should we Uh, Yeah uh, For the album cover (laughs) It's most It's most of the Beach Boys uh, Playing with some goats
0: (laughs) Yeah pretty much That's uh, Uh, You You nailed it Uh, Photograph was taken By George mm Germán At the San Diego Zoo Because the original Working title of the record Was Our Freaky Friends For which this cover Was intended for Yeah But Um, it still works For Pet Sounds
1: Yeah uh, the title, Pet Sounds, was sought up by Mike Love uh, and explained by Brian Wilson that it was uh, named after the dogs, referring to his two dogs, Banana and Louie, who can be heard barking at the end of Caroline No.
0: Mm-hmm. You did read that uh, it was. people also speculate that it was an homage to Phil Spector. Yes, P.S. Phil P.S., Spector. yes, which I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it was uh, – Jardine also expressed a disappointment with the chosen cover – he was quoted as saying it was crazy to go to the zoo. The art department screwed up pretty badly on that one. Uh, I wanted a more sensitive and enlightening cover. Mm. And it really is. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't fit well. It's a It's a weird
0: album cover. No, it doesn't make any sense.
1: Um, there was also a lot of confusion about what the term pet meant, because a lot of people thought that it meant like petting, like making out <laughs> a little bit, you know, and obviously it can also refer to literally the sounds that a pet makes, or it can also mean, you know, because this album has so many unique instrumentations and sounds on it, maybe that's what it refers to. Is they were Brian Wilson's pet sounds, and there's also a rumor that they used to call um, Brian Wilson dog dog ears. Good boy, and it was because he would he was such a perfectionist, and so much like, hey, let's do it again because I heard. You know, somebody somebody on base was off beat by like half a tick right here, so they'd have to redo a whole take. Or oh, hey, somebody was a little playing a little too loud here, so we got to re- we got to do it one more time.
0: They're just some of that fall into revisionist history. Where I'm sure it's a lot probably of just sitting around going.
1: I'm sure that a lot of it does. What
0: are the what is that pet sound like? Ooh, I like that pet sound,
1: especially with something like this that's been picked apart by so many people, it's so looking
0: e- <laughs> for meaning in it. Yeah, you go back and you're like, well. That has to mean this. Yeah.
1: Does it? Mm, does it really?
0: I don't think it does. We're ready to track by track this
1: yeah uh, We can track by track it. Yeah, I got a couple more notes oh, out there. They're about the the release and the aftermath of the release. So it might be better to come back around to this.
0: Right. You could loop back around. You could do it uh, right you now. You know what? Let's do them right
1: now. All right. So uh obviously when this came not obviously, but when this was uh, when they took it to Capitol Records. The executives were super unimpressed with it and they had to keep calling them back into meetings over and over and over again. And there's a pretty famous story about Brian Wilson showing up to one of the meetings with a tape recorder with eight pre recorded answers on it. And so they would ask him a question <laughs> and he'd look at the tape recorder for a second and fast forward to rewind to push play and then answer the question that they had just asked him. And mm. this went back and forth for a little while until they finally said, okay, we're going to go ahead and release it.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm, and then, I'm only here, so I don't get fined. Right. Basically.
1: Uh, I am under contract to be in this location. (laughs) Uh, It initially sold 200,000 copies, uh, although total sales were estimated around 500,000 copies. It wasn't awarded a gold certification by the RIA until February 2000 because it didn't do so well originally. And they didn't have direct sales estimates, and they had a hard time, I guess, estimating the sales. Um, but in February, 2000, it was, uh, certified both gold and platinum and they estimate 2 million units sold. So pretty high selling. Uh, hmm. that's it though. That's it. According, according to in, in 2000, that is 20 years ago now, okay. but still that seems very low to me for such an influential album, but maybe that's part of its appeal. But, uh, Capitol Records was super worried about its performance. So they really quickly pushed out, um, Best of the Beach Boys, which came out only two months mm-hmm. after this on July 5th, 1966. One of
0: those aforementioned 55 compilation albums.
1: Exactly. And uh, it really quickly went gold and sold much better than Pet Sounds did. Uh, like I said earlier, this did do really great in the UK. Rolling Stones founding editor uh, Jan, Ve- Jan Venner, I believe is uh-huh. how his name is pronounced. Yes. I, that's another one that I always pronounce wrong. I apologize. Uh, later recalled that fans in the UK identified the Beach Boys as being years ahead of the Beatles and declared Wilson a genius. Mm. One thing that I think that we can agree on Rolling Stone with.
0: Yeah. Jan Wenner?
1: Yes. However, this may be, this coming up here, may be the most important story about this album. So before it was officially released in the UK, uh, Bruce Johnson took two copies of Pet Sounds with him on his way to London. And he managed, uh, because he sort of knew Keith Moon Mm -hmm. and he managed to get in touch with Keith Moon and say, Hey, can you get me in touch with John Lennon and Paul McCartney or anybody from the Beatles? I want to play them this album. And he did. Keith Moon was a huge fan of the beach boys. And so they all ended up in a hotel room. Uh, I I should say uh, uh, Bruce Johnson, John Lennon and Paul McCartney ended up in a hotel room together and Bruce Johnson played pet sounds for them. Mm -hmm. And apparently they listened to it very quietly and then stopped the record, you know, stopped playing. And then they said, "Can we hear that again?" So they listened to it a second time, and then they left and immediately started to write "Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band." How true that is, obviously. You know, again, could be, could be myth, could be reality. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting to me that it's sort of a loop. Uh, the Beatles influenced Pet Sounds, which influenced the Beatles. And uh, George Martin, the uh, Beatles producer, said, uh, without Pet Sounds, Sgt. Pepper never would have happened. Pepper was an attempt to equal Pet Sounds, not to emulate Pet Sounds, not to be in league with Pet Sounds, to equal Pet Sounds. To me, that is – and like I said, this story has been told over and over and over again. Uh, Bruce Johnson has told it several times. Um, It's repeated all over the place in – you know, uh, musical journalism, how true it is, who knows, you know, it could have been a hotel room packed with a hundred people and they just kept putting the album on over and over again. It could have been a hotel room literally with the three of them listening to this album, just like the story. Who knows? But to me, that is a super interesting story that the stuff that the Beatles were doing influenced the Beach Boys who then went and made an album, played it for the Beatles and then the Beatles took off and made an album influenced by the Beach Boys. And
0: I believe there was some, the, some, tit for tat there so to speak some back and forth i know there are elements uh, uh cuz the next album that the beatles released after pet sounds was revolver mm-hmm. and i know there there's some influence from on the revolver record from pet sounds yes. and some influence from sergeant pepper's as well yes and it's you know one of that story always something like that sounds really cool on the surface and then you wonder how how realistic that exactly. that was that they just what pick, kicked him out and said, let's write a record about Exactly. Like, they probably Well, good night. Hey, hey. I've got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> we should all wear different did colored you,
1: suits. Did you get any pepper with that room service? And then oh <laughs> I mean come on. Like yeah, exactly. But it is it is a a pretty legendary story and again just like with everything else in rock and roll take it with a grain of salt or pepper
0: <laughs> it's two in a row
1: dad jokes
0: <laughs> there we go oh well there you have it
1: should, should we do the track by track we can sure because uh to me first track uh, wouldn't it be nice opens like this Very, uh, very poppy. Come out of the gate
0: swinging. That's what I always say.
1: It is is a very strong opening. And it's very memorable. That plucked like boom, 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 boom. So,
0: And it's not until you really like break down this song do you realize how unusual it really is. Yes. So on the surface, it just sounds like a really nice fun song to listen to amazing vocal melodies and that very familiar Beach Boys vocal sound but really getting into it it is a masterpiece of craftsmanship of arrangement and production so first of all you have like you mentioned the wrecking crew this extraordinary group of session musicians that were ever present in the 60s and 70s they make an appearance as the band on this song and most of the record Um, the actual Beach Boys other than Brian were relegated to mostly vocal work only and especially on this song just vocal work mm-hmm. uh, and wilson is a perfectionist in the studio oh yeah uh and he worked them hard they did the instrumental master for this they played 21 times before wilson deemed it good enough to use as the bed track for his <laughs> vocals and it sounds so weird for that period because the two guitars that they were using that are being played are being played directly into the mixing board yes with no amps so it's a very upfront sound um and what stands out is the thickness of it all—the aforementioned Phil Spector wall of sound. Now, I listened to this both in its original mono form and also the stereo mix. Oh, and it's kind of strange how it sounds to me. It sounds better in mono than it does in stereo. You, you are you are stepping into the
1: minefield, my friend. Oh, am I? That is, did I did I step into it? That has become one of the most controversial things. So most, how should I put this? Most professional musicians and a lot of recording professionals say that the mono version of this album is superior.
0: That's what I'm saying. Right. Oh, I agree. Am I a professional? I, I don't know. Semi? Semi-professional. You're semi-something. semi, semi something, Semi-professional recording guy. Yeah. Sort of. But- uh, Hey, there's money coming in. That's true. That makes me a professional, that's I think. That's true. No longer amateur. <laughs> um.
1: There's a lot of people that like the stereo version because it's great to listen to in headphones because there's a lot of panning and there's a lot of, you know, I can hear this over here and I can hear this over
0: here. So I think in stereo, it gets spread out. And I would agree. Moved around and loses some of its, like, punching in the face. Sonically, it sounds better in stereo. Like, as a sonic experience, it sounds better in stereo. But as a piece of art, I prefer it in mono because it is all right in your face, almost mixed at the exact same level. I would agree. And everything gets completely equal weight, even if that sounds a little convoluted at the time. Uh, instruments that are used in this track alone, drums, bells, timpani, jingle stick, which I don't I don't know what that is, glockenspiel, <laughs> we've had a, a glockenspiel talk before, uh, trumpet, 12 string guitar, tenor sax, bass, 12 string mandolin guitar, tack piano. Which is like a regular piano, except tacks had been affixed to the hammers to make it sound more percussive. Aha. Uh, a regular piano, an accordion, a baritone sax, a six-string bass, a stand-up bass, and a regular six-string guitar. All in a two-minute and 33-second song.
1: That is, uh, that is something else I forgot to mention here. This album, considered by a lot to be one of the most influential rock albums, 38 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It is so short. Yeah, Randy just looked up like, what? What? It's only 38 (laughs) minutes long. Every one of these, I think the longest song on here is not even three minutes and 30 seconds.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, well, and the Beatles were similar. Yeah. The Beatles had nothing, like, uh, that was really that long until later in their career. Uh, Revolver, I think, has, like, uh, looking at it right now, the longest song on Revolver, there's two of them. They're three minutes long. Wow. Everything else is two minutes or below. I mean, you don't have to have, you don't have to go on, you don't have to go on for 15 minutes to make a musical statement. Yeah. And, but just that he was able to get that much in there. But again, listen to it both ways. Mono and stereo. There's a, it's very distinctly different. Indeed. Yeah.
1: And I'll try to make sure that I remember to link both of those in the show notes here.
0: Did you make a note?
1: I, I will right now. Okay. I think my favorite review of this song was a journalist Nick Kent called it a veritable pocket orchestra?
0: Ooh, I like that. I
1: liked that too.
0: You still believe in me? I'm going to write that down. Do You're you right. believe in me, Kyle? I believe in you, Matthew. Pocket orchestra. There's a now, veritable
1: that down. pocket orchestra. Oh, veritable.
0: I didn't. I didn't get that word in there. So as I, uh, you know, really started to explore and dig deep in into this uh, record, a term or genre, kept popping up in a bunch of places. Uh, And the term is Baroque pop. Ooh. Uh, I had to look it up, but it makes sense. So it's basically a fusion of rock music and elements of classical music, which totally makes sense. Yeah. So all these uses of counter melodies, uh, harpsichord and harpsichord-like sounds, which is totally classical, Uh, and maybe why I didn't really get this record until later in my life. I think there is a sophistication and adultiness to classical music that is very elusive for most, most, most younger people to grasp. Um, And here comes some of the influence into this. The Beatles had a song on Rubber Soul called In My Life. And there's some argument as to who's actually responsible for the musical structure of the song, John or Paul but whatever, but the harpsichord is there, the vocal harmonies are there, and a clear influence on this particular song and what uh, the album is as a whole. Lyric-wise, that song, in my life, uh, finds John being quite autobiographical, perhaps being the catalyst for Wilson to be more introspective mm-hmm. and write more personal lyrics. And Paul McCartney does list this song as one of his very favorite Beach Boy songs. So it's... It's strange. So so there's more examples of this alternative instrumentation from this song. There's finger cymbals, Mm -hmm. there's a bicycle horn.
1: Yes, and a bicycle bell. Right. A
0: contra clarinet, and of course, a piano plucked with bobby pins, as you do. Yeah, you know, I mean, why wouldn't you? So they kind of all mesh together to form this very dreamlike sound. It just sounds very ethereal and otherworldly. And lyrically, these are lyrics of the old Beach Boys, more or less. So, Gone Are the Surfing References and Help Me Rondas. But this is starting to get very adult, very serious. Yes. And there is a fragility to these lyrics, a kind of a vulnerability. And it's it's very outside the previous Beach Boys motif, you know.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me that it comes – it's still, I think, a love song. There's a lot of love songs on this album. Uh it's interesting to me that it comes after a song that is different from what the Beach Boys had done before, but very much also sort of in the same vein with the sort of uh, like the dent, 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 dent type of a noise. Yeah. And to me, it's interesting that it's a, an immediate change, but it also fits so well. Yeah. You know what I mean? As, as the overall arc of the album, it's a great change.
0: Yeah, I agree. Again, I feel like it falls victim to, uh, we talked about this. Uh, I think last episode, it it falls victim to the first song being so powerful that you tend to overlook the second song, yes. and don't really get back into the record till a little bit later. And again, pacing or whatever, you're you're victim to that. Yeah, if the first song is as good as it is, the second one, if it's not as good as the first one, tends to be overlooked. That's not me. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a much more conventional rock song. Mm -hmm. Kind of harkens back again to some of their older stuff. So again, transitions, which flips back over to something more traditional.
0: It's an interesting song for a few reasons. So one, it's the only song on the record where a majority of the instruments are actually played by members of the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wrecking Crews play some percussion and some overdubs, but most of it is just the Beach Boys. And it's, like you said, it's more of the more normal sounding as far as it has a pretty standard rock song composition to it uh lead vocals are shared but the most part is uh mike love Mm -hmm. allegedly the song is about psychedelics people seem to think that because he was consuming serious amounts of lsd uh anytime that he gets the tiniest bit introspective uh then it must be Uh, As a result of death of self or death of ego, which is prevalent in hallucinogenic experiences. Yes. I guess that is a possibility. But if you look at it in the scope of the rest of the record, it is so much more to me about growing up into adulthood. So we have to remember that this was a guy uh, who was in his 20s, early 20s at that. He's just figuring out who he is. Yeah. uh, Dump some heavy drug usage and some seriously stressful lifestyle choices and it's gotta be tough taking its toll on him. Uh, you're gonna eventually have to have some sort of reckoning with yourself and the way you treated people in your life. At this point, uh, this point, his, uh, his parents or his friends or his bandmates are looking at him and saying, that's not you. But maybe it is. Lyrically, yeah. they say, that's not you, but maybe it is. Well, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, I think that the, the lyrics speak to exactly
1: what you're saying. Uh, I think it's the second chorus that is... Uh, I once had a dream, so I packed up and split for the city. I soon found out that my lonely life wasn't so pretty. I'm glad I went now. I'm that much more sure that we're ready. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about, is growing up and going out on your own for the first time and trying to figure yourself out and then kind of realizing, oh, I actually had it pretty good before I came here and tried to figure everything out. So, you know, do you go back? Do you struggle through?
0: Yeah, right. It's it's clearly the work of someone digging deep within themselves, regardless of the methodology or the chemical assist involved. You know, this is a very personal work as this whole record is, and he's leaving himself very exposed lyrically and coming from where he came from, where every song was about, I just want to be with that girl and I just want to go to the beach and and surf, and I just want to do that. And all of a sudden you have this very adult point of view where he's looking inward. And then, of course, people are like, well, if you're looking inward, then he must be high on drugs all the time. And it's like, well, is it not possible to be introspective without chemical assist? And if he does have a chemical assist, so what? He's still looking inward. He's still trying to figure out who he is and develop that sense of self.
1: Well, that's that's, always been one of my things about – Songs like this, where people are immediately like, "He wrote it because he was on drugs, man." So what? So? Do you enjoy the song? Do you enjoy what it's talking about? Do you hear the lyrics, and do they have some kind of meaningful impact on you? Who cares oh, what people, they were doing? If
0: you didn't, if you only knew how many of the things you read, watch, <laughs> what films those people creating it are on drugs. <laughs> if you if you put that moniker on it and said, "I will not watch anything by anyone." Who was on drugs when they created it You would be very bored Oh yeah You wouldn't be watching or listening to much of anything Because they all were And to some degree still are Yes So so get over it <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I, I can't believe Phil Collins was uh, smoking uh, marijuana While he was singing in marijuana. the air tonight What? And I'll never fake that drum solo again <laughs> Don't do Oh you finished it Sorry I'm dear. That like uh, is that like
1: like saying uh, Macbeth in a pod for to a podcaster? Are you not supposed to mimic the Phil Collins? Don't do it. Something in the air tonight. Thing?
0: The, no, don't do. The do we have
1: ear- to call it the drum
0: solo? The drum solo <laughs> from in in the air tonight. Don't do. It. <laughs> uh,
1: Everybody, does Matthew, that. don't talk.
0: Oh, put your head on my shoulder. Oh, whoa, whoa, right.
1: <laughs> Well, <laughs> uh, this uh, this is a song that's uh, it's interesting because it's it's about people who are in love communicating non-verbally written in words and then put to music. (laughs) It could have just like, I think a better way to do this song would have just been to have that title and then explain what it is and just have two minutes of silence or just like some breathe.
0: Hmm. So, so this is one of three songs on Pet Sounds in which Brian Wilson is the only beach boy performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he performed the lead vocal and all of the instrumentation was performed by the Wrecking Crew and other assorted studio musician, musicians, as you alluded to. It's such a beautifully sweet song. Yes, it is. And the vocal melody, which I have, if I haven't said yet, Brian Wilson is the ultimate in vocal harmony and melody. I mean, there is nothing like the way he constructs a vocal harmony. It's just so cool to listen to and know how much work that was. It's not like he just showed up and just started singing like that. So originally this was written as an instrumental chorale with no vocals, but thank God that there is because it's just so wonderfully sublime is the word I kept coming up with it. It's, Brian Wilson called it one of the sweetest songs he's ever sang, and indeed. It's so sweet and it's intimate again, very expressive between the narrator and Mm -hmm. his lover and it hits all those emotional notes. And there's a really great cover of this song by Elvis Costello from 2001. Ooh, I have not heard that. Very good. Also, Linda Rodstadt uh, did a cover of this. I think I've heard Um, that one. And her time is coming on this podcast, by the way, Ooh. because like pretty much everything else in her catalog knocked it out of the park. Just wonderful.
1: I like how that came out as a threat. (laughs) Her time is your coming time on this coming, podcast, Linda Ronstadt. Linda Ronstadt.
0: You better watch out.
1: <laughs> you better watch your back, Linda Ronstadt. Audio We're going to talk totally about in. one of your albums, <gasps> goddammit. No! <laughs> I'm waiting for the day when we talk about Linda Ronstadt.
0: Oh, well, then you won't be waiting long because her time's coming on this so podcast. We, I'm waiting for the day. Is also the next
1: track on this album.
0: If there is a track on the record that seems a little out of place or unnecessary, this is the one. Yes, I would agree. And I think part of it is because it was
1: written before this. Yeah, predates the sessions yes. by a year or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, written by Brian Wilson, still. He did copyright the solo composition in February. Uh, sorry, I just lost my place. 1964, February 1964. So this was quite a ways beforehand. Um, and for this album, Mike Love made a couple of adjustments to it, mm-hmm. but it's pretty much the same song.
0: Yeah. It's another one of the songs uh, That only Brian appears on though, mm-hmm. um, And he seemed Personally he seemed underwhelmed With the track in the long run Yeah, He said vocally I sounded A little bit weird in my head Musically we added English horns Bongos and a ukulele to the already Eclectic mix of instruments already present Lyrically it's pretty close to where We've been but for whatever reason this feels A little forced and it does it feels a little It feels a little like shoehorned horned in Yeah Lithuanian taxi cab right in there. <laughs> just, just somebody with a foot yeah, just, pushing this song into
1: the album? Sh- Get in there! Right in there. Uh, I wonder if it was a timing thing. I wonder if he just, he knew, he recorded this in the sessions, because we'll talk about that at the end of this, the, the recording sessions for this whole thing. Yeah. I wonder if this was something, he knew he had the studio time, so he recorded this, and then was just like, you know what, this time-wise fits in there, let's put it in there to pad this side of the album out. Mm. Hey,
0: that's a possibility.
1: I mean, you know, you hate to think about that on like, oh, this is the best album ever. And then you're like, did somebody shoehorn this in here? But pretty much every of best, course best album ever, of course something was shoehorned in there or something didn't quite fit right. Well, or, we
0: got space for one more track on here.
1: Well, I don't have anything. Yeah, don't have what's anything. on this tape? Put it in.
0: Yeah, Let's just recycle this. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, I like it. I like it.
1: Yeah, it's nice. First instrumental on here. Let's go away for a while.
0: Oh, my. So Feature- the- go ahead. Oh, I was no, saying no, features
1: twelve violins, piano, four saxophones, your favorite, yeah, an oboe, vibraphones, and a Coca Cola bottle used as a guitar slide.
0: Hate the saxophone. Um, <laughs> it's a uh... this one's got four. What are you doing over there, four Randy? Times what was that? Eat. Oh, oh, oh! Coke <laughs> bottle. Yes, yes. That's what it looked like. Looked from like here. He
1: was, it looked like he was jerking it. <laughs> I was afraid for a second. Like, wow!
0: Out of the corner of my eye, I was like, "What's happening?" So this record didn't need an instrumental let alone two, but it got them. Yes, it did. And and it's exquisite. It is. First thing about it, absolutely no Beach Boy plays on this Mm -hmm. Beach Boy song. (laughs) Not a one. It's all wrecking crew and assorted musicians. But the maestro, the unbelievable champion of this song, is the writer. Uh, The layering, the texturing, the ability to find places in the music for all these sounds is the work of an outright magician yes um of this song brian said it was quote the finest piece of art he had ever created up until that point he said that every element of that production worked perfectly what else are you going to say about it one thing i did begin to notice as i listened to this album through several times is that almost all of the songs fade out Yes. So I wonder what the end result would have been had he allowed songs to resolve themselves instead of the fade-out. The fade-outs do allow you to kind of string the songs together and have them behave as one extended piece of music. But it would have been interesting to hear them kind of resolve themselves. I have
1: a theory about that. Oh, do you? Yes. Uh, So if you listen to... um, I like theories. So there is an album that came out for the 40th anniversary of this called the Pet Sounds Sessions. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of the studio recordings of these songs. The, the If you buy the box set, and I think you can get it on iTunes. I'm not sure if it's on Spotify. It's got the original mono recording, the stereo remix recording, and then probably 50 more tracks that are studio recordings and aborted recordings and things. But almost every single one is – they'll get towards the end of the song, and then all of a sudden you hear from the booth Brian Wilson go like, all right, that sounded pretty good, but let's do it one more time because we got to change the, I didn't like the timing on the bass tracks. Let's do it one more time. And I wonder if he faded these out because (laughs) every single song he's like, all right, that was pretty good, but let's do it one more time. And just, he he did it so quick, and it's so quick on the sessions that it's literally...
0: So each song is actually three and a half minutes long, but they're like, oh, shit, we got to cut this out. (laughs) We can't have him yelling at the musicians. This was his favorite track. This was his favorite track. (laughs) But then at the end, he started talking.
1: All right, the Coca-Cola bottle sounds a little funny. Can we... Can can we we try it with a Pepsi bottle instead? Can we get a different bottle in there, please?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would have absolutely loved to have been a fly on the wall during this era. Oh yeah. Just to witness some of the things that never made it to the final mix. <laughs> uh, there's still so much good stuff left to be mined out there. It's just uh, there's just a world of stuff that we never heard like that.
1: Yeah. I got for one me. more I got one more fact about this song. So it had the working title Let's Go Away for a While and then We'll Have World Peace.
0: Yes. Which is
1: a reference to one of Brian Wilson's favorite comedy recordings uh, by John Brent and Del Close called How to Speak Hip from 1959. And uh, doing my prep work for this, I listened to How to Speak Hip. Did you? Because it is on YouTube. hmm It's got a few funny moments. It really is. It's this really uptight, like, school video narrative. How to Speak Hip.
0: It's 50s. How to Speak Hip. 50s comedy or yes. 60s
1: comedy. And then the other guy is, like, the hip cat,
0: but... If it's there, all pre Lenny Bruce, oh, so yeah. it's none of it's. Ugh. If there's
1: one thing that I have learned about it, people were so much more patient because it's yeah, 45, 50 minutes long total. Waiting maybe that
0: long for a punchline,
1: yes. And it is just your every single every single track on it has the same punchline. And the only good thing that I liked about it is they kind of have it split in two. So the first half of the album, I assume it was probably side A and side B of the record. But the first half is um, them in like a studio, and it really is done like the old school school, um, old school school. Uh, I can't think of what those are called. With the sli- like a slideshow, where oh. it's like film strip. Yes, film strip. Thank you. It's like Hep Cat. Boom. boom.
0: <laughs> I have two film strip Jive machines turkey. upstairs. Boom,
1: boom. Uh, <laughs> Jive and, Turkey. And then the other side is uh, them going on a quote unquote field trip. Uh, it's one square guy and one uh hip, hip guy. cat. Uh and the hip cat is teaching everyone uh uh how to speak hip, basically.
0: Square cat and or square guy and a hip square cat. guy and a
1: hip cat. <laughs> the field trip is pretty funny because it's just them walking around and that's where it actually kind of starts to get funny. Like I laughed at a few of those jokes. You gotta
0: wait a long time to get a to get some you comic do. relief. And I, I'm glad that you did that research because I saw it. And I just skipped over <laughs> you were it. Like, Skip. I'm like, nope, nope, no. Nope. I saw the hip cat part. I'm like, nah, I don't want to go there. Two fifties. I let Kyle go there. It really
1: is. Uh, I'll put a link to the in the show notes to it if you want to go listen to it. Just make a, yourself a note now. I did. Okay, good. Hip cat. That's the note I just made for myself. Great.
0: You'll never understand what that No, meant.
1: I'll be like, what the hell is this?
0: Uh, Sloop John B. Uh, such a weird choice for this record. But it's the fuck
1: song of the record. <laughs> the guy is fucking the boat. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is such a weird choice. It is a very unusual choice. And it's... So, in case you don't know, uh, this is a cover arrangement by Brian Wilson of a Caribbean folk song originally sung
0: by the Kingston Trio. Uh, No, this actually dates back to 1916. What? Yes. Well, that's the Caribbean folk song version. It was first recorded in the 20s. Wow. It was recorded uh, over 50 different times, including the Beach Boys (laughs) version, and not covers. Recorded 50 different times. From artists as far ranging as yes, the Kingston Trio, as you mentioned, Reliant K, Johnny Cash, Dwight Yoakam, and Simple Minds, like it's been recorded. the The first time that I saw a recording, uh, like a recording, trade, uh, not a, a copyright. It was tw- nineteen
1: twenty eight. Wow! So it's been it's been around forever. See, I didn't dig that deeply into it because I was like, yeah, I've heard the Kingston Trio version, I've heard the Beach Boys version, and I knew that it came from somewhere. So it's what. But-
0: Re- That's fascinating. It's reworked here to a folk rock version. And yet, and yet, this song would peak at number three on the Billboard 100. Became one of their most <laughs> successful recordings, certainly from that era. Oh, yeah. Here, uh, If you've never heard it, it sounds like this.
1: Al Jardine said this sounded like something John Philip Sousa would have created. (laughs) Yeah, it's the bass line. It's the
0: bass. It's like it it, uh, stands in for the tuba. It didn't reach the heights of Kokomo. That's true. But still, to boot, it's number 276 on Rolling Stone's top 500 rock songs of all time. (laughs) What the hell?
1: (laughs) Not top 50%, though. That's good. Still. (sighs) But uh, again, going back to our uh, earlier upset about uh, drug lyrics, Brian Wilson did elect like to change the original lyrics from, this is the worst trip since I've been born, to this is the worst trip I've ever been on. Uh huh. <gasps> Deliberate reference. Uh, Deliberate. You can never listen to it again. Especially it, all you uptight squares who love the Kingston Trio version. It's, uh, yeah, that's right. So That's right, course,
0: It's a little aggravating for me. To read that every time someone mentions a trip Right Or I was feeling really good That it has to be a veiled reference to psychedelia
1: Good morning Good like you're high Right And morning sometimes, Like it's the time of day when you get high Sometimes Damn it
0: Sometimes the words mean exactly what they say they mean And there's no subterfuge to it You know, it's just Hey I was feeling pretty good <gasps> Why? Well, A, I'm on a Boat in the Caribbean. I don't need to be high. I mean, on a boat in the Caribbean, I don't need to like what? Stop doing that.
1: So there is a little bit of an explanation for this song being on here, though.
0: Oh, oh, really? Is there? So
1: Brian Wilson included "Sleep John B" on Pet Sounds to appease Capitol Records, who, surprise, were voicing concerns that the album uh, required the inclusion of a hit single in order to sell well.
0: You know, you're the beach boys.
1: <clears throat> Give us a nautical song, will you? So, uh, and I totally agree with this, but a lot of people think that it disrupts the lyrical flow of this album, which I agree with. I think that it's weirdly placed on the end here. It doesn't fit. Side A. Jim Fusilli, who's a, a-
0: Like Fusilli Pasta?
1: Like Fusilli Pasta. Is a, he's a musical journalist. Uh, he wrote, It's anything but a reflective love song, a stark confession or a tentative statement of independence like the other songs on the album. And it's the only song on Pet Sounds Brian didn't write. Uh, True. However, if silly suggests that the track fits musically with the album, citing the tracks chiming guitars, double-track basses, and staccato rhythms. I don't agree with him on that, but I do think that he has a good point. You know, Brian Wilson didn't write it. It's a cover song, right. and it's in a weird spot on this album, and it was included to appease Capitol Records. However, he did include, as best as he could, I think, the things that he was working on in this album. Go on. Acoustically, it sounds a lot like the rest of the album. You know the
0: yeah sonically it has the same sound to it, yeah, yes,
1: I mean the double track basses, like uh Fusilli just mentioned, yeah, uh the chiming guitars, staccato rhythms, but uh this is this is this the side of the end of side
0: A. well, I also found that is very oh. is a very popular song amongst English football clubs. Who like to change the lyrics a little and sing it during the breaks, during the oh. games. So it's a good, it has a good drinking song vibe to it. <laughs> so it makes sense that they would play it at a football game. Exactly. Sloshing their <laughs> mugs together. <laughs> their warm, delicious beers. Mm, this Guinness is room temperature. My <laughs> favorite.
1: It's like drinking a loaf of bread. Mm-mm. So now. Yes. We get on to what I think is possibly the masterpiece of this album. and I'm. I, I have a feeling you might agree with me. I here. do flip the record over, first track, God Only Knows.
0: Uh Uh That's the
1: name of the track. God Knows what's on this album. And the song is called God Only Knows.
0: So it's least, uh, to me, it's least inexplicably, perhaps one of the most beautiful pop songs ever written and recorded. Mm -hmm. It is haunting and dreamy. I very few words that could accurately describe what I feel about this song and why I love it so much uh, sometimes there are songs that touch your soul or your heart or whatever and you're not sure if it's musically or lyrically or both uh, but it's very much to be like it's a bit of an obscure reference Oh boy. Uh, for some of you out there but Kyle, you will get it. So remember on Seinfeld when one of Elaine's boyfriends kept making her shut up every time Desperado by the Eagles started playing? (laughs) Yes. Elaine, can you just not talk right now? Yeah, every time I hear this song, I have to kind of stop (gasps) what I'm doing and listen to it. This is your Desperado. It is. It is my Desperado. (laughs) It is is very much one of Brian Wilson's answers to Rubber Soul as well. Oh, yeah. So you can definitely hear some of the influence in there. But it's so unique in its own right. So unlike anything that was on the radio at the time. It is full of these really sophisticated harmonies, these inverted chord structures, and you're constantly tilting your head. uh, Like, what did I just hear? Um, Andy Gill of the Gang of Four wrote this about the song. It's really very like the way classical music works, like a classical opera. The melody rises and falls while the echo of that melody sung by another voice intertwines with it. Then it goes back to the verse with its own melody which is a variation on the chorus melody, as that is sung, the background voices provide an abstract, disconnected harmony all the time up front is the poetic heart of the lyric, and it 's like that that 's exactly what I'm trying to capture there there's so much going on, you know, and it um it ends with that with a round, yeah, you know the like a row row, row your boat type thing bouncing around
1: it's funny that you would mention row, row, row your boat because they actually. In experimenting in the studio, they recorded a version, uh, I should say Brian Wilson and the Wrecking Crew recorded a version of Row, Row, Row Your Boat uh, in in rounds, just in in experimenting and kind of screwing around in the studio with different uh, uh, instruments playing in the background and and chiming in only on certain uh, cycles of the round and things. And I could not find, I don't think it's on the Pet Sound sessions. I couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. Dang it. Uh, I'm sure it's out there somewhere somebody has a recording of it
0: do we know what the sound uh, song sounds like uh, in general let uh, do we have a piece of it we have yes a piece we do of, it?
1: Uh, of of God only knows yeah. yes here uh, d- take a listen
0: to me, God only knows what I be without you I would still go believe me. The world could show nothing to me. So what good would living for me? God only knows what I'd be with you.
1: God only knows what I'd be with Riding away on a horse there at the so end so good. So this song was famously praised by Paul McCartney as the greatest song ever written.
0: Yeah, and he immediately sat down to write here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. Allegedly.
1: Allegedly. This is something we've come back to over and over and over again. This song was apparently written in less than an hour. I have the same note. Do you have the quote? No. So uh, from a 2015 Guardian interview, uh, Brian Wilson claims that he and Tony Asher composed the song in just 45 minutes. Uh, We didn't spend a lot of time writing it, said Asher. Came pretty quickly, and Brian spent a lot of time working on what ended up being the instrumental parts of that song. But the part that has the lyrics really was one of those things that just kind of came out as a whole.
0: Yeah, it lyrically fits in perfectly with the whole record. Yes, the whole theme of the record. Uh, it got some flack for including God so prominently yes. in it. Many in the band and around the band feared that it would affect the sales of the record, which didn't. What?
1: Oh, I was just going to say that it was uh, it was interesting to me that that was still such a controversial thing <laughs> at this point in 1966. But then again, I started looking around and I was like, no, nah, it'd still be a controversial thing today. Yep.
0: Mostly the biggest thing that happened to it was it got banned at a few radio stations in the South for blasphemy. Blasphemy. But it's still got really intimate thoughts. Perhaps there's a bit of codependency going on, but really it's an expression of love for his girl. And it's it's just a that's oh, such a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous song. And it is. It's it's a yes. stop me in my tracks every time it plays. I got to finish listening to it. Shh, Shh, sh- 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 everybody sh- everybody really shut really up. Everybody shut up.
1: At least it's not witchy woman. I'm just going to.
0: Witch-a-woman?
1: Witch-a-woman. <laughs> uh, one other uh, little side note here. Sure. Uh, which I'm sure you're going to love. This originally had a saxophone solo in it.
0: I know. I read that. <laughs> I read that and I was like. God only knows how happy I am that there's no sax solo in this song. <laughs> uh, See what I did there? I did. See how like I rewrote? That. Yeah. That was nice. I know there's an answer. You do? What's yes. the answer? Well, that's the next song. Oh! So now that I've made a big stink about not trying to hang on a psychedelic reference <laughs> on every song that mentions a trip or what have you... You got this song, which is the epitome of the drug song. Yes. Originally titled Hang On To Your Ego. (laughs) Brian wrote this after his second ever acid trip when he had the death of ego or what would be referred to in those circles as, quote, meeting God. (laughs) Uh, This one is so very clearly about that with the lines they trip through their days and waste all through their nights. It's pretty obvious, (laughs) right? Apparently there was some pushback from the rest of the band. Yes, apparently. And Uh, he actually felt that it was too far afield. Yes. Which, go ahead. I would say Mike Love especially
1: uh, opposed drugs like LSD and uh, didn't want to associate the band with them. Uh, And Brian Wilson became so concerned when they started talking about this. He took it to the band and said, you know, hey, how do you guys feel about this? Do we need to fix this? Do we need to do things? And uh, the band basically said yes. And so afterwards Brian changed changed the title. To I Know There's An Answer, and I Know There's An Answer, and uh, changed some of the lyrics, apparently, as well. hmm Improvised bass harmonica. Oh. Had no idea that was improvised by Tommy Morgan. It makes use of all the instruments again.
0: It does. It's not your typical band, gathering in a garage and banging out song-type stuff. Uh, notably, Glenn Campbell would make an appearance on this song as part of the Wrecking Crew for playing the banjo. <laughs> Also, Frank Black does a cover of this released under its original title, Hang On to Your Ego, which is absolutely worth a listen. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> I did like uh, – there was a quote um, where uh, Brian Wilson was talking about uh, – he said, I had taken a few drugs and I had gotten into that kind of thing. I guess it just came up naturally. And in response to that, Lauren Schwartz, who had introduced Brian Wilson to LSD, recounted that Wilson's first trip on, was on 125 micrograms of pure Owlsley. Uh, And said that Wilson had the full-on ego death. It was a beautiful thing.
0: See? Death of E. Oh. There it is. That's a lot, by the way. And in the 60s.
1: When it was like. Much more. (laughs) We don't really know what we're doing yet. Put this on your tongue. Okay. Okay. What could go, oh,
0: my God. Literally. (laughs) Uh, Here today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This one kind of falls a little flat. I
1: think it's because uh, it's you have such strong opening and then followed by, I know there's an answer on this side of the album. It's just kind of like, meh.
0: It just uh, it feels a little forced, you know? Yeah. The, the rest of the record flows so well, even with Sloop John B. It still flows, still fluid. But this one, uh, I don't think the record would have suffered that much if they would have left it off. Yeah, me yeah. either. It's one of the mystery songs on this record because I don't really know. Uh, oh, oh, what am I reading there? Oh, Brian Wilson said that. Brian Wilson said this in an interview in 1996. Oh. He said, Here Today was probably one of the mystery songs on the album. I don't really know what it's about. I liked it, but yet I didn't. I don't really identify with that song like I do with You Still Believe in Me or Caroline. No, it was just one of those songs in there, one little song. So he he's even kind of, yeah, <laughs> just kind of passed it off. Like, yeah, oh, I don't want to, eh, whatever.
1: I did like the idea, though, that apparently, uh, the vocals in this end with a warning to the uh, protagonist of God Only Knows that what he sings stands no chance of longevity. Oh. Apparently. Hmm. I read that. I had, nev- had never put those two together before, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of fits. It
0: yeah, is that is weird.
1: Again, I wonder if that's something that's shoehorned in, but.
0: It's a revisionist look, you know? It's weird.
1: I just wasn't made for these times.
0: Right, and now we get back to what the record really sounds like here today just kind of feels like a bit of a speed bump. Mm -hmm. And I guess this song also gets characterized as psychedelic rock. I think more for the harpsichord and, of course, the first usage of the electro theremin. Instrument would again be used for the smash single, Good Vibrations, which was recorded during these sessions but held back to be released as a single. Mm -hmm. Wilson loved the sound of the theremin because it sounded, quote, Like a woman's voice, and it made sexually evocative sounds. (laughs) I like that. I do too. I
1: I really think this song is about Brian Wilson kind of, I don't know how to put this into words. Uh, It's about him kind of realizing like, okay, I am a step above a lot of my musical peers. Oh, for sure. And no one can quite understand what I'm trying to do because they're not on the same level as me.
0: Totally an autobiographical song. Oh, yeah. So I feel like he gets some of the early glimpses, though, into his fragmenting psyche. So as everyone knows, most people do anyway, the stress, the heavy drug use would begin to take its toll uh, during the latter part of these sessions. And then more so for the smile sessions when he had a sandbox put in his living room <laughs> and his piano put on top of that. I feel there is for sure a sentiment in this song that he doesn't fit in because of all these ideas in his head. And how I'm sure there was this growing frustration with the lack of ability of technology to match up what was in there. So if there was no way to physically capture what you wanted to, but you could still hear it in your head, I would start to be depressed as well. And feel like if I'd only been born in the 70s or something, by the time I wanted to get these ideas out, I'd be able to.
1: There was a way to do it.
0: So also unique to this song is backgrounds that are sung in spanish yes when the lyrics in english are when i will when will i be one day i will be and that's pretty telling right there so kyle i don't know if you're familiar with uh, a documentary called echo in the canyon um, i'm not that explores the laurel canyon sound it's narrated by jacob dylan uh, bob dylan's son and throughout the film, they're also performing with his band, The Wallflowers, a number of hits of that date, 1965 to 1969. And with him are a bunch of other singers uh, like Beck and Nora Jones, Fiona, Fiona Apple. Uh, and this is one of the songs that they uh, perform on there. Before they do that, though, there's a great piece about the song and them re-recording this song and rehearsing it. And Brian Wilson was there. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen him. He looks he looks fried and it yeah. and just a little... Not all there until they started talking about this song and he is instantly transported into these sessions. He's talking about the key signatures he used, what studios they recorded in, who stood where and what he was trying to achieve with the song. And he's all of a sudden very lucid and present, like quickly. And it's fascinating to and another testament to that power of music, how it can just pull someone out of this 40 year haze he's been living in to immediately put him back to where he was at that moment and and can give like n- board numbers like oh we were playing that you know point three db up and this and this and yeah. to know that something happened in 1966 and he's having a conversation about in 2018 when they <laughs> recorded this and it's instantly there it's just a it's an amazing thing just to watch you should check it out
1: i will it's very it's good uh a- I know that we've talked about this a little bit before in private, and obviously I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here.
0: Oh boy. Here um, comes. <laughs> here comes. No, I
1: was just going to say, so we both have unique experiences in that as technicians, we've both worked with a lot of fairly well-known people, mm-hmm. well-known musicians. I mean, you worked with the former president once <laughs> fairly well-known. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we've worked with a lot of people doing audio video stuff. I have seen that similar type of a thing. Happen with multiple older artists ah. where they are, and again, I really want to say the name, but I'm not going to. Um, I watched somebody who was out on an acoustic tour, and for the eight hours leading up to the show, uh, he was backstage uh, shaking, he had tremors, he could barely walk. He, you know, was just in and out of his dressing room, and every time you'd talk to him and be like, hey, it's two hours to show, and he would just be like, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to We're going to have to call this show off. And, you know, the local crew is all like, oh, my God, are we really going to have to call this show off? We're going to have a full house tonight, you know, blah, 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 And all the way up until 10 seconds before he walks out on stage, it's like that. It's this constant, oh, my God, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to. And all of a sudden, he stands right behind the curtain and takes a deep breath and he is a completely different – he's a fucking rock star and walks out on stage. <laughs> Every single song just – it was uh, this artist and and one other performer uh, playing the guitar and then some bass back up for some of his other songs where he played guitar. Unbelievable. And then he comes off stage and he's just exhausted. He almost collapsed when he came off stage. We had to help him to the dressing room. And then he drank a few bottles of wine and got on a tour bus and left. Uh, Jeez. Yeah. Um but i i have that's that's the most prominent one that's the most obvious one but i saw that over and over and over again working with with artists yeah it, it's unbelievable to me how they can just be completely i don't want to say fried but fried yeah and then all of a sudden you bring up a song you bring up a music you bring up a tour and they're oh that was the tour where we started to hear and we did and they just have every single detail about it
0: well and i'm sure they're not all fried oh yeah but brian wilson was definitely fried yeah and you know it 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 affected his mental stability and it's like a gap in history, though, for 40 years. What has he been doing all of a sudden? You're like, Whoop! Yeah. And he's back and forth between these two places. And it's funny because they're rehearsing. And he's like, no, no, no. No, you're a half step too high. And, and like all that, I'm like. This guy doesn't even know where he is most of the time. <laughs> and to be to be able to have that kind of callback to it is still, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So yeah. I'd check it out.
1: Uh, next track, title track, Pet Sounds. Yes. Although it wasn't originally the title track.
0: No, it was not.
1: So uh, originally, uh, this was written for use in a James Bond film. In fact, it was written for use in You Only Live Twice. Mm. Um, it was originally titled Run, James, Run. Here's what it sounds like.
0: Fine gyro work in there. Indeed,
1: Uh, All (laughs) instrumental, obviously. Um, Another one of those ones that has a a mythological story associated with it, because the story goes two ways. One is that Brian Wilson wrote this song and then tried to present it to uh, the people who were making James Bond. I think it was MGM at the time. And they just said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Another story goes that they came to him and asked him to write it, and then it got rejected. And then he had a third story: goes that he wrote it just on speculation, and then put it on the album, hoping they would pick it up. So who knows? Hey, you don't know. Uh, You know, Brian Wilson himself has said that it was rejected by them, but it didn't appear in the movie. It didn't appear in the movie. That's all that's important.
0: Uh, Notable about this track is the fact that the drummer was banging on coke cans as a percussive instrument. So the return of the coke well, they use coke bottles as a slide. So, so clearly. Coca-Cola, you're doing a good job, really. Just stocking that studio high and... woo,
1: Just loaded up in the studio with Coke. A-Cola.
0: (laughs) A-Cola. Close it out. Yeah? Caroline, no. The final song on the album was not even a Beach Boys song. (laughs) Brian wrote and recorded this as his first solo single. And it peaked at number 32 on the Billboard 100. Two months later, he reworked it a little and released it on this record. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those great flights of fancy and serendipity. So the song is actually, allegedly, based on a misheard conversation. Mm-hmm. Tony Asher says he was talking to Brian, and Brian was telling him, Tony, a story of a girl he knew from high school. And Tony interrupted, saying, oh, Carol? I know. Wilson heard it as, Caroline, No. And got inspired and just went and dashed off the rest of the song while he was super stoned.
1: <laughs> As that's, you uh, do. That's what you As do. As you do.
0: You know, and lyrically, it kind of, it just wraps up the inter- the intimate lyrics that that kind of anchor this record. You know, it's got this, and it's got this weird uh, instrumentation, Hal Blaine takes a turn on the Sparklet's water jug. Ooh. And also, you've mentioned before, if you let this uh, play all the way to the end, you get the sounds of a passing train mm-hmm. and Wilson's two dogs barking in the background.
1: That train sound effect yeah. is from the LP "Mr. D's Machine" from 1963. It was a sound effects.
0: Oh, record. Did they credit it or not credit it?
1: I don't know whether they credit. It. I found that online. I don't know that it. I don't think it's. It's probably not on the album cover.
0: Did you have just got any train? Did you
1: probably you? could have.
0: I mean, they had the budget. They could have just walked yeah. out.
1: and Walked out, put a mic next to a train. Here comes passes. a train. Mm. So, you but would think so. But it's a
0: fitting end to the, one of the most in, innovative and influential records in music history. Yeah,
1: it's a nice closeout. So uh, a couple more things we do have to yeah. talk about with this album. Though. Sure. So first of all, the recording sessions for this. I mentioned earlier the Pet Sounds sessions. It's a separate album that includes all of the Pet Sounds album. Uh, And also a bunch of tracks that they recorded for this that didn't make it, including Good Vibrations, which Mm -hmm. obviously went on to uh, lots of success. Uh, The Little Girl I Once Knew, uh, Brian Wilson, did a song called Three Blind Mice that apparently has nothing to do (laughs) with the story, Three Blind Mice. There's also some uh, back and forth comedy tracks that they did that were maybe going to be included but were cut. Mm. Uh, There's a track called Dick. Mm. That involves an exchange between Brian and a woman named Carol. It goes like this. What's long and thin and full of skin and heaven knows how many holes it's been in. And uh, the response is, Dick? Uh, No, a worm. The participants then burst into forced laughter. According to documentarian Keith Badman, just as with his music, Brian insists on perfection for Dick. And six further takes are made by Carol to tell the joke. (laughs) There's another track that was called Fuzz that involves a similar joke. uh, What's black and white and has fuzz inside? A lorry? A police car. Carol then asks Wilson if he has hemorrhoids, which he replies, no. Well, let me shake your hand, she says. Why? It's really great knowing a perfect asshole. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good joke. Right? I think those would have been great included on there. Just slapped in between a couple of songs. But Alas. Might have ruined the whole record. So there it is. That's what we think about pet sounds. Like I said at the opening of this, that is absolutely a, a, a tiny dent on the gigantic bus that is pet sounds. <laughs> I mean, it's like oops, a shopping cart. <laughs> uh,
0: Audio Judo just recorded their next forty-seven episodes we, about pet sounds. Yeah, oh we could, <laughs> we could, we could turn this
1: into a multi-parter, uh, but let's not. Let's find out what you guys have to say about pet sounds. So uh, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about Pet Sounds, whether it influenced you, especially if you're a musician listening to us. Let us know whether this is something that influenced or, influenced you or not. Uh, you can get in touch, best way, email us, info at audiojudo.com, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, Twitter is at audiojudo, Instagram is at audiojudo. Uh, we do also have some merch mm-hmm. uh, and a Patreon, mm-hmm. which you can join if you would like to help support us, and you get a little bit of uh, some bonus content yeah, though
0: we are recording as as we speak. Well, not as we speak. But Literally
1: not as we speak. But uh, you can access all of that, audiojudo.com uh, or patreon.com forward slash audiojudo or uh, go to the store. Just go to audiojudo.com and you can click on shop up at the top and it'll take you to the uh, merch store. That is all interested.
0: correct. All correct information.
1: Uh, like Matthew mentioned earlier, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network now. Uh, check out some of the other great podcasts that they have at pantheonpodcasts.com. Uh, anything else I'm forgetting?
0: No, I think that's it.
1: Sweet. Well, until next time, everybody, take care. Uh, let us know what you think.
0: Yeah, and have a good couple weeks, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye.